If you have your Bibles with you, and we encourage you to be bringing your Bibles these days, turn to the book of Luke. When I'm here, oh, I, I want to say I, I appreciate very much Dwayne and, and Kevin and Annie uh, taking the pulpit when I'm out. They do a great job of delivering the word. <clears throat> Plus, it gives you a chance to get some message other than what's in Luke. So it's a good thing. But we're going back to our study of the book of Luke, and we're going to deal with the same passage that, or part of the same passage that we dealt with last time I preached a couple weeks ago. It's in Luke chapter 1, and I'll start reading with verse 28. I want to entitle this message, Mary the Favored One. Mary the Favored One. Or I could have titled it, uh, How Are You Pregnant? Uh, but I don't like to be controversial, so I thought I'd stick with a, a nice title, Mary the Favored One. Verse 28. The angel came to Mary and said, Greetings, or hail, you, are, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now Mary, being 12 years old or so at the time, was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You're highly favored. You've been favored by God. And then, just to go down to verse 38, uh, the angel explains to her that this being favored is going to entail her getting pregnant and uh, has to talk through some of the details of that. Mary doesn't quite have a clue what's going on, but nevertheless, and I love this, she says, I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. Uh, let the video start rolling. Let the chips fall where they may. Uh, you do with me what you want. Amen. Mary, the favored one. Let's pray. Could I get a few people or a few dozen people around the auditorium to pray for the message as it's going forth that it would have all the authority it's supposed to have? Thank you. I appreciate it. Heavenly Father, right here, right now, we need you. As we sang before, we need more, more, more of you. We, we, we hunger for your presence. We hunger for your word. We hunger for your truth. So we're praying right here, right now, this moment, that you'll descend upon the words that come out of my mouth and give them an authority that doesn't come from me, an authority that human eloquence and wisdom can't possibly contrive. Give it an authority that confronts domains of resistance in our minds and in our hearts that keep us from moving into the full, the fullness of the kingdom reality that you have prepared for your people. Lord, some of us need to be jolted out of the herd mindset, uh, whereby we just float along with the crowd. And God, motivate us to swim upstream, to march to the beat of a different drummer, to be the radical, sold-out, kingdom revolutionaries that you've called us to be. Use this message to do that, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 This entire message is about the word favor. Uh, twice it is said that Mary was favored by God in this passage. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what does that mean? And the first half of this message will be what it doesn't mean, and the second half will be all about what it does mean. It's a very simple format here this morning. Here's what the word does not mean. It doesn't mean that God has favorites. doesn't mean that Mary was God's little favorite girl. And you might think that because the word favorite comes from the word favor, one who receives favors, so it certainly looks like Mary is one of God's favorites. 
But I submit to you that God doesn't play favorites. And that's an important thing for some of us to hear. Uh, if you think that God plays favorites, there's two unfortunate consequences of that. Some people think that God plays favorites, uh, but unfortunately they're not on the inside of God's circle of favorites. So they feel rejection and they may feel anger about that. Even worse are those people who think that God plays favorites and they think they are one of God's favorites. I'm not sure which one is worse. But I'm going to speak specifically right now on the first one. Especially for people who have grown up in environments where it was clear that the significant people in your life did play favorites, and at least it seemed to you that you weren't in on the circle of favorites, uh, there can be a tendency, uh, if you think God plays favorites, to think that you're on the outside of a circle of favorites. Not to turn yet another message into a therapy session, but, but I grew up kind of like that however accurate or inaccurate it was, um, I, it always seemed to me that uh, parents and, and, and teachers and, and football coaches and others played favorites, and I always felt like I was on the outside of that. My superstar brother was the favorite, and he uh, just seemed to always get the, the special treatment, and I was kind of always the, the, the bad kid, always acting out, always doing the wrong stuff. And so I always felt like I was on the outside of the circle of favorites. I remember one class in particular in eighth grade, uh, Miss Munzel, I believe her name was, uh, this teacher who had my brother two years earlier, and now I'm sitting in her class, and I was, as usual, acting out and saying inappropriate stuff and goofing around and getting in trouble. And at one point, she just lost her cool and, and said, you know, Mr. Boyd, I had your brother as a student, and... Uh, he was a delight. <laughs> My, what a contrast. <laughs> and all the kids in the class go, ooh. And, and I responded by doing even more inappropriate stuff, uh, you know, to be the tough guy. I'm not even going to tell you what I did. Uh, I didn't stay in the class. I'll just put it like that, okay? I was, I was removed. But um, there's something inside of me that, that, that uh, you know, beneath the hard exterior, I, that really hurt. That really hurt. You see, when you're on the outside of the circle of favorites, you experience rejection, and then you experience anger, and at some point you just quit. And it's like, you know, forget it. And so if you think that God plays favorites, and you're not in on the circle of favorites, and I think there's a lot more people who are in that category that we might realize, there's a sense of anger and frustration uh, towards God. And you may not blow God off altogether the way I did with my eighth grade teacher because you don't want to, you know, declare war on God and go to hell. So you, you sort of go along with the, the plan, but, but, but it, it erodes, it pollutes your passion. It, it corrupts your vision of God. And it's hard to be really passionate and on fire and excited and in love with a God who plays favorites when you're not one of the favorites he plays with. I spoke with a lady a number of years ago, a uh, tragic story, um, where she had uh, apparently miraculously conceived of a child because the doctor said that you and your husband aren't going to have kids and they had just started the process of adoption and boom, she gets pregnant. And so she's seeing this as a, as, a, as a God miracle. Nine months later when she's giving birth to this child, the umbilical cord got wrapped around the child's neck and the child was stillborn. And uh, of course, this, this was, was absolutely uh, world-shattering for this, this couple. Uh, the lady went to the doctor of philosophy or theology and, and he informed her that, well, you know, God's ways are not our ways and his ways are mysterious and you know, he's got a reason for everything and this is all part of a wonderful plan and maybe he's trying to teach you a lesson. There's something you're supposed to learn. And see, this lady, 
She went along with that for about eight years. Uh, when I talked with her, this had happened eight years earlier. And, and uh, uh, the question she had for me, the problem she was wrestling with was, why, why don't I have any passion for, for God and passion for the church? I used to, but I don't anymore. And we traced it back to this event. And see, when I finally gave her permission to say out loud what she was really thinking on her heart, um, it came out like this. How is it, she said, when she finally got clear about things, how is it that prostitutes get blessed and get to have kids, but, I, but I've got a lesson I'm supposed to learn? Or, or, or teens don't even want to get pregnant, but they get pregnant. They're favored by God, but, but I got a lesson I'm supposed to learn. So God takes my child. And crack cocaine uh, ladies get pregnant, but I've got a lesson I'm learned. How is it that God favors other people to give them children, but I have a stillborn after it looks like he gave me a child? And there's a lesson I'm supposed to learn but he's not going to tell me what it is. And see, what, what's going on there is her anger is about thinking that God plays favorites and she's on the outside of the circle of favorites. In fact, if you chunk down what's really going on in her head, she has this idea that God plays favorites and he gives live babies to his favorites but dead ones to those who aren't his favorites. That's really what's going on. And it, it, it's pretty hard, wouldn't you agree, to get excited and passionate and on fire for a God who does that. You see, and the, the anger was seething there that whole time. But you see, if you think that God is meticulously controlling everything that happens in the world, everything is, is directly or indirectly a result of his own will rather than other wills, you almost have no choice but to conclude that God plays favorites and probably at some point come to the conclusion that you're not one of those favorites because life is profoundly unfair. There's no rhyme or reason to the positive and negative things that tend to happen to people. And when the negative happens to you and you think that God's the one who's sort of puppeteering the whole show, well, then you come to the conclusion that, that, that he's just not on your side. And I'm sure most of us here sometimes have asked the question, what did I do to deserve this? What did I, why me? Why this right, right here and right now? And if you come to the conclusion that you're not on the inside of the circle of favorites, it can breed anger and frustration, maybe even rejection, but it pollutes, it screws up your theology, screws up your picture of God. It, 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 it just undermines the passion that we're called to live in. In some theologies, and I'm going to be shooting pretty straight here right now, in some theologies, you actually eternal, not only does God play favorites, he eternally plays favorites. And the theology says that before the world was ever created, God had his favorites. He, before he created anybody, he just decided, okay, I, these are my favorites and these are not my favorites and I'm going to save my favorites and I'm going to damn to hell those who aren't my favorites. The father elects a certain group of people and then the son dies for that super, certain group of people and the Holy Spirit calls that certain group of people but everyone else just didn't make the cut and, and, and they're damned to hell before they're ever even born. See, that theology, it, it, it's held sincerely by people, but it can, at least for some, really erode your picture of God. God plays eternal favorites. If that's how you think God operates, it's really hard to, in the core of your being, believe that God is as loving as God could be and God is as just as God could be and God is as good as God could be because it's, a little, it's easy to imagine a God who's more loving, more just, and better than that one. You, they, the folks who hold this theology sincerely assert that God is all loving, all just, all good because he tells us he is. But see, you can't actually see the goodness and see the love and see the justice if that's how you think God operates because it goes against the very moral fabric of our being. Any human who acted like that we would never call all loving, all good, and all just. And so it can pollute your mindset and undermine your passion for God. 
I want to take a look at a couple of verses because I'm convinced to the core, my, this is not the God of the Bible. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. God is love. Why well, I know a little, uh, little interesting footnote on church history. There's not one creed ever made that asserts that God is love. They have all the other attributes, but God is love isn't there. You, you figure that out. God is love. Now, what I want us to notice here is this. Love isn't first and foremost a verb for God. It's not something God does. It's who he is. God is love. It doesn't say God does love. God is love. Now, because God is love, God does love. But he does the verb because he is the noun, not the other way around. Got that? See, love is, love is who God is. It's his essence. It's his being. Uh, from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is perfect, unsurpassable, incomprehensible, unimprovable love. What God does, amen. And what God, when God loves, he's simply being himself. When God loves you, he's simply turning himself towards you. He is love, and that's why when he acts towards you, he acts loving. It doesn't always appear that, appear that way to us, but in fact, everything God does is motivated by love. His love is perfect, and therefore it's not partial, and it, it, it's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't show favoritism. Uh, it, it, it's not wishy-washy like, like human love. God is love. Throughout the Bible, you get the, the, the point. God hammers it home that God doesn't show partiality. So it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. One example here. The Lord your God is God of all gods and Lord of all lords. He shows no partiality. Everyone say no partiality. Does God show partiality? Apparently not. And he accepts no bribes. No bribes. Now, you may think that's just a little primitive piece of theology like people in the olden days used to think you could bribe God, but we do it all the time. Uh, you know, oh God, tell you what, if you come through me on this one, I'll be a good Christian the rest of my life. Oh, I'll treat my husband wife right now. I'll, I'll, I'll give up this and I'll quit this and, you know, whatever. But see, you're trying to bribe God. You're trying to court his favor by, by you know, offering him some things. Not maybe not money, but, but whatever. Uh, it's not a good idea. He's not impartial and doesn't take bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigners residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And because God is like that, his people are supposed to be like that, even in the Old Testament. And you, therefore, are to love those who are foreigners. Over and over again, God hammers this home. Now, see, here's what happened in, in ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, like so much of the church today, they fell into fallen religion. Fallen religion is, is when we use religion to meet our own needs like, it, like an idol. Fallen religion eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the original sin, and feeds off of uh, its distinctiveness. Fallen religion always gets a tribal God, a God who shows partiality and a God who plays favorites, and, and we just decide that because we believe the right things and do the right things, then, then, then he's on our side and against all who might oppose us. Uh, Israel was called to be a minister to the people of this world, but instead they separated themselves as the tribal religion and having the tribal God who fought on their side. It happened in ancient Israel, and it happens to a large degree in the church today. We have a tribal God, a God who shows favorites, and we're on the inside of that. In fact, I would suggest to you that tribal religion is the most ancient heresy in the world. God was always trying to confront this throughout the Old Testament, trying to confront this. So he says, for example, in Isaiah 55, 
Come, all you who are thirsty. All of you. Anybody hear me? If you're thirsty, come. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. I'm offering this to everybody, and I'm offering it for free. And then a little later on, he says, I've made David a witness to the peoples. Now, David, there's a microcosm of all of Israel and a forerunner of the Messiah. And he's saying, I made him a witness to the peoples. The word there is goyim. Uh, it means the nations. It means all non-Jews. God's always been interested in all people. He wanted to use Israel to reach them. And then he says, surely you, it's in the plural there, he's referring to the nation of Israel, surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you, because of the Lord, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Here's God's program throughout history. It's taken a lot of different forms, but this has been the driving point. God wanted to raise up a people, he still does who would draw all nations, all people, break down ethnic divides, drawing people to themselves. And, and the way they would do it is by being endowed with splendor, by looking beautiful, by radiating with the character and the love of God for all people. They were to be a witness to all people and a magnet for, to all people. That was the plan. But see, Israel, like so much of the church today, lost that focus and they, they decided they're, this, they're just a special people group uh, we're, we're the righteous ones, we're the holy ones. So rather than serving the rest of the world, they stood in judgment over the rest of the world and felt good about it. So it was for so much of Israel and so it is for so much of the church today. And then the Lord says, he concludes by saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I've heard that last passage quoted frequently to justify every contradiction somebody wants to believe. Whenever you get talked into a corner and your belief system makes no sense, you just, oh, his ways are not our ways, and since I know my ways are his ways, don't ask me any more questions. That's not what the passage means. If you look at it in its original context, what God is saying here is this. My ways are, are not your ways. As far as the heaven is above the earth, that's how far my thoughts are above you. Because you know what? You're tribal, but I'm not tribal. Uh, you're racist, but I'm not racist. Uh, you're into religion, but I'm not into religion. Uh, you're into feeding off your distinctness from other people, but I got an eye for all people. God's heart has been throughout all history for all people in all situations, all nations, all culture, wants to bring them all to himself. And the reason he raises up a distinct people is not so that they'll feel like they're God's special favorites, but so that they'll understand that their call is to love the world, to serve the world, to radiate with the beauty of God. Our central job here, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you belong to this group, this tribe of kingdom revolutionaries. And you got to know that your most fundamental job in life, it's been the fundamental job of God's people throughout all of history. Our job is to love people like God loves people. Our job is to be individually and collectively endowed with splendor. Amen? Our job is to witness to the beautiful, outrageous, indescribable, extravagant, universal, impartial love of God for all people at all times. And to witness to that by how we live and by how we talk and by how we treat other people. Our job is to be the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And that kingdom has no walls. It can't have any walls. It's got a strong center. It's defined by what it's for, not by who it's against. Because if it's God, flesh, and blood, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, it's not our enemy. Our enemy is the principalities and powers that hold all people in bondage as victims. If it's God, flesh, and blood, it's not our enemy, even if they think that they're our enemy. Rather, they're the objects of our love and the ones that we're fighting for. 
The kingdom of God is to be a kingdom without walls. It's the kingdom with a strong center where we stand up for truth and we preach the truth and we, we, we follow Jesus Christ and we stand for the things that God stands for. But it's not a community that's defined by the parameters, by who's in and who's out. We don't need moral policemen doing inspections to make sure that only the right people are in and only wrong people are out because the minute you start doing that, you're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, minimizing your own sin and maximizing other sins. Rather, the kingdom of God is to be like Jesus walking on the wayside of the hills of Galilee, and there's just an entourage of people following him. Whoever was thirsty was going for water. Whoever was hungry was coming for food. Whoever was sick was coming for healing. Uh, whoever was in darkness was coming for light. And whoever followed him, then there they are, they're just following. And Jesus is defining the community, but there's no one out there. He doesn't appoint some, some disciples to go out there and do moral inspections to see you know, who, you know, whether everyone is following Jesus is worthy of following Jesus. Jesus because everybody knows that nobody's worthy to follow Jesus. That's why it's called the kingdom of grace, praise God. Amen. It's a community without walls, without partitions. This is why this point about whether God plays favorites or not is so, so important. It says in John chapter 3, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son. Apparently it's the entire world that he loves. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a PhD. I can figure this out. I think it means he loves the entire world. Acts chapter 10. I love this passage. Peter, Peter, this is how hard racial categories are to break. Jesus was always manifesting this kind of universal love, constantly talking. Go, his last words were, you know, go into all the nations, making disciples. 20 years later, his disciples still don't get it. They're still sitting on their butts in Jerusalem doing nothing. They still think this is a Jewish gig. Finally, God gives uh, Peter a bunch of revelations to say, go and take this to the Gentiles. And kind of slaps him up, up alongside the head. So Peter finally gets the, the point and goes to the household of Cornelius, a Gentile. And finally, as Peter's preaching now, <laughs> it says, then Peter began to speak. I now realize, <laughs> got a revelation from God. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Dude, you could have got that out of the Old Testament. You sure, certainly should have got it out of the ministry of Jesus. But it took, if it took three visions, better late than never. God does not show favoritism. At Romans chapter 2, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, chronologically speaking, and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. 1 Timothy chapter 2, God wants all people to be saved Amen. and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people... Uh, see, that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. I don't want this just to be to me and a little select group of elect favorites. I, I, you know, how is it that, that we're called to love all people, even our enemies, if we think that God doesn't do that? You see, is God a God who says, do what I say, not what I do? No, the reason we're to love like that is because that's how God loves. All people at all times... Every single person you'll ever come across in your life, I don't care what they've done, I don't care what they look like, you can lock it in, you can know this, you can take this to the bank, that Jesus died for them and that means they've got unsurpassable worth. Amen. And God wants them saved. Amen. Amen. I know that God is at work in all people at all times. I can just believe that. And I see all people, I like what Brian McLaren says when he says, he, he, sees, he sees all non-believers as pre-Christians. Uh, they're pre-kingdom. They're on the way. Look at them with an optimistic uh, mindset. Second Peter chapter 3, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Everybody say anyone. Amen. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone. Say everyone. Everyone, everyone to come to repentance. 
Uh, I got a PhD in theology. I'm going to tell you. Well, here's my exegetical conclusion. I think that means God wants everyone to be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. If you parse the Greek, Greek in this, it means that he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. <laughs> All right, there. <laughs> That's free of charge. First Peter, First John chapter 2. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But here's the good news. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's power in the blood, and it's sufficient to bring forgiveness for all people. It was intended for all people at all times. I just grieve over this idea that God, before anything ever happened, he just, he just when, decided this little group's going to get it, and that major group's not going to get it, and Jesus only died for the little group, not the big group. No, 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 no. His heart's towards all people at all times in all situations. Lock it in. God does not play favorites. Lock it in. Take it to the bank. His love is perfect, and therefore it's not partial. Lock it in. God's love burns intensely to every person that he has created. Amen. Lock it in. It means this. If you are listening to me right now, whether you're in this auditorium or on the radio, um, uh, you can know this, that God loves you right this moment as much as he loves Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or Joel Olstein or any other saint you might imagine throughout all of history. God is passionately in love with you. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what's going on in your past. Doesn't matter even right now how you're struggling. Um, if there is, in, in your mind, if there is any if, ands, or buts, maybes, exception clauses, any of that garbage going on, well, that's true generally, but not for me because I have the disqualifier. If that's going on in your mind, I want to tell you right here, in Jesus' name, rebuke it because that's not of God, that's of the devil. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen. It's for you. Amen. It's for you. And see, it's precisely by believing that that you'll be transformed out of the stuff that you're in. You don't get transformed first in order to get the love like it's some kind of carrot at the end of a stick. No, no, you, you, you get the love first. And see, that's what motivates you to, to get out of the garbage that you're involved in. It's the one thing in life that empowers you to get out of the garbage that you're in. Paul said the love of Christ constrains us and motivates us. It, 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 it's the fuel that this engine runs on. Take it to the bank, lock it in. God's love burns towards you right here and right now. In fact, God's love for you isn't a verb that he does, it's the noun that he is. God's love for you isn't a verb that he does, it's the noun that he is. When God simply faces you, he's love and therefore you're being loved. When God, when the perfect triune love of God, that unsurpassable, indescribable, incomprehensible, unwavering, Love that defines God throughout eternity. When, it, when, it, when, it, when it's turned in your direction, it looks like Calvary. And you can lock it in and take it to the bank that God's love for you right here and right now is Calvary. Good. All the time. And you, see, God's love, isn't like, God's love isn't like human love. We're finite beings, so we have to kind of like spread it thin the more people that we love. It really doesn't work like that, but that's how we think. But see, God's love is infinite, which means it can't be fractioned up, which means God loves you right here and right now as though you were the only person that God created. It doesn't get spread thin. It's not finite. It's endless, which means I could say that, okay, you are God's favorite. <laughs> uh, you, are, you, you are God's special kid. You're God's special child. It's just that I want to say that for me and for everybody else in this auditorium and for every other person who lives on the earth right now and for every other person who's ever been created throughout all of world history. But you are God's favorite. Lock it in, take it to the bank. So God's, 
God's favor does not mean that God plays favorites. So you don't have to worry about being on the outside of God's circle of favorites. You are God's favorite. So what does the term mean? It doesn't mean that God plays favorites, and it doesn't mean that, that, that Mary's going to have a wonderful, rosy life now. Some people interpret favor to mean that. But as you, if you look at Scripture, most of the time when people are favored by God, and this is a little bit paradoxical to us, but most of the people that God favors, their life is not so rosy. It would have been a little rosier if God hadn't favored them. <laughs> that certainly was the case with Mary. Her life was not made easier because of this favor that God showed her. If you look at the whole of Scripture, what you find is this. God favors people, or he calls people, individuals and groups. He favors people, he calls people, he elects people, not to be the special circle of people that he alone loves or loves more than others, but rather he favors them for partnership with him in carrying out a job, in carrying out a ministry, in carrying out a kingdom task. That's what it means to be favored by God. Several weeks ago when I was talking about Mary, the nobody from Nowhereville, we also talked about Gideon, another nobody from Nowhereville. And I want to go back to that passage because it really shows, in, in Judges, it shows what favor, what God's favor means. Here the Israelites are in a real conundrum because these evil people are all around them and yada, yada, yada. An angel shows up to Gideon when he's, he's pressing out wheat in a wine press trying to hide from the Midianites. And the, the angel of the Lord, which is really a manifestation of the Lord himself, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then he says, Gideon, I'm going to use you to free Israel. But Lord, Gideon asks, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And Manasseh was already the smallest of the tribes. So I come from the smallest of the tribes and the smallest of the families in the tribes, and I'm the weakest in the smallest of the family and the smallest of the tribes. I'm a nobody from Nowhereville. And the Lord answered, well, here's the answer to that one. I will be with you. Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't, doesn't it? And you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. It's like, okay, God, uh, if I'm going to do this, i got to be really, really sure that you're in this with me. And it's never a good thing to ask God for signs, but once in a while, God indulges us, and so we got to cut Gideon some slack here. The point I want us to note is that God's favor towards Gideon was not that, Gideon, I love you more than other people, nor was it, Gideon, your life's going to be really nice and rosy and blessed right now, because as a matter of fact, Gideon's life was about to get a whole lot rougher. What it meant, and what it always means, is that God favored Gideon by partnering, calling him to partner with him for a specific task. And so it is when God favors Moses and when God favors Jeremiah and when God favors Israel as a nation and when God favors Ezekiel, when God favors Abraham. You got that language all over the place. But it doesn't mean that God plays favorites. What it means is that God is calling them to partner with him for a particular purpose, a particular plan, a particular task. And so it was with Mary. Mary, you are highly favored because I'm calling you here to a very, very important kingdom task. Mary is a prototype of all believers. If you're a human being, you're loved with an unsurpassable love. But if you are a disciple, a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, now you are favored like Mary because God wants to call you to partner with him to bring forth his kingdom in a particular way. He wants to birth something in you, if you will, to bring it forth, to further his kingdom plan in this world. 
I could go so far as to say this. God wants to impregnate you, as he did Mary. Not literally now, don't worry. But God wants to impregnate you with Christ in a particular way that when you give birth to it, it will bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven in a more particular fashion. God wants to birth in you a passion uh, for a ministry, a passion for a service. You have got a unique role to play in furthering God's kingdom here on earth and furthering this this uh, mustard seed kingdom that's, that, that's going on. He wants to birth something in, in you or, or, or implant something in you that, we, that when you bring it forth, it furthers the kingdom. I am impregnated with a need to communicate. That's why I'm up here right now. I, I'm just wired this way. I love to take an idea that's complex and try to make it simple, try to make it understandable. I love to go to the scripture and, and, and just, you know, pick it apart and, 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 and find something that's worth communicating. I love the challenge of going to a passage that seems unpreachable. And, and, and then digging into it and asking the question, what does the word favor mean? <laughs> let, let, let's build a whole sermon on the word favor. See, I love that and trying to communicate it. I love taking ideas, theology and whatnot, and, and communicating in a ways that, that will make a difference in people's lives. And so what floats my boat? Since, since that's the way I'm impregnated, man, w- when people get it, that's like giving birth. Like I would know I'm a man, but you know, I... I, I But you give birth. You see, it comes out of you. When people get it, when the coin drops in the slot and somebody finally realizes that God really does love them, that makes my day. Uh, When when, when somebody quits being a pew sitter and gets involved and starts living a countercultural lifestyle of a radical kingdom, I love that. That, that, that's like my paycheck. I, I just gave birth to something, you see. When someone gets an idea and it makes a difference in their life or how they view God or, or people's marriages gets healed or, or whatever, oh, it's like, oh, that, that felt good. And then, oh, that's wonderful. That's, that's why I exist. Now, now we, we all have different callings. For some, it's communication. For others, it's something different. But God wants to impregnate you, that you give birth to Christ in a unique way in this world that will make a difference in people's lives. We're all called collectively to partner together. Uh, There's a unique ministry that we're all given. It's the vision of Woodland Hills Church. And one of the reasons why we come together is sacrifice of our our resources, our money, which is really a form of sacrificing of our time and energy because usually it takes time and energy to make money. But we pool that together. And part of that's because by doing that, We are favored by God to see some unique births taking place. By pooling our resources together, we give birth to this youth ministry and give birth to this children's ministry and give birth to a counseling center that gives birth to a lot of people getting healed who maybe otherwise would never get healed. We get to give birth to people getting it when they finally realize how, how important covenantal communities are. And we, we give birth to small groups taking it upon themselves to go and minister to a, a Native American reservation and partner with churches throughout the city. We give birth to ministries that impact the city, that clean up schools, that pick up uh, parks, that, that build houses for people. We give birth to ministries where they're bringing food to people who are hungry and, and cooking for people who can't cook and, and repairing walls of the house for for, for battered women and a million other things. And that's a privilege we have. In fact, the Bible says explicitly that in in 2 Corinthians 8 that it's an opportunity, it is a privilege, it is a favor that God gives to us that we get to do something that looks like Christ that brings Christ into the world. But on top of that, amen. But see, even beyond, beyond what we're called to do together, we each have an individual niche to play, a role to play. God wants to birth something in us uh, that will grow 
and boom, then come out and change the world. Some people here in this auditorium right now, I'm convinced, are, God is trying to plant a seed in you in response to that ministry moment. And it doesn't usually feel like a full pregnancy. You know, usually it's like, I, I might be pregnant. You know, there's something, I, I, again, like I would know, <laughs> I'm a male, but, but I, I, my wife's had three of them, so I, um, it, but, but you know, you, it starts with, I, I'm showing a little bit. Uh, there's something going on here. There's something going on here. I am showing a little bit. I'll, I'll blame it on pregnancy. <laughs> um, but you, it starts with a little, a little pull. It's like, could that be the Lord saying that he wants me to, to step up here? And see, Mary, Mary didn't know what she was getting into when she said yes. Uh, that's why it's an act of faith. You don't have, we Western people like to have all the ducks in a row, like everything planned out, you're all scripted ahead of time. I don't know exactly what I'm getting into. Sometimes God doesn't give you that. In fact, normally God doesn't give you that. What he gives you is a pregnancy. <laughs> and it's like, now you got to figure it out. He gives you a flashlight in the middle of the, of the dark and, and, and you, you can see where this step is and now where this step is and maybe where the next step is, but you take it step by step. step. What he wants is a people who, like Mary, will say, be it unto me according to your word. Be it unto me according to your word. Uh, and Lord, go ahead, let the chips fall where they may. I will follow you anywhere. And you don't know where he's going to lead. You may end up working in an orphanage in Thailand. You start this thing going. But I'll tell you what, uh, you'll be more fulfilled following through on this ministry than you would be if you say no. He's trying to birth something inside of us. Some people here, he's trying to birth a call into a worship ministry. You're, you're to be a musician or a singer with our youth or with our kids or, or with the adults. Some will be called. God will birth in you a desire to, to serve people who are hungry, to work in homeless shelters, to cook dinners for people who need dinners cooked for them. Some are maybe called to work in our counseling ministry, which is just having a major impact in some people's lives. Others are going to be called to leadership positions when it comes to uh, racial reconciliation or breaking down the wall that the socioeconomic walls that divide people and churches. Each of us, there's a million different things, but each of us, if we're listening, if we have a merry attitude, uh, each of us, for each of us, God is trying to plant a seed that when it is grown, it will bring forth uh, a child. The kingdom of God in a unique way that's uniquely tailored to your giftedness, your life experiences. Now, why is that called a favor? I want to end by asking this. Why is that called a favor? And I got to end quick. Because it doesn't look like a favor. God's doing us a favor. You get to now live more self-sacrificially than you otherwise would live. Uh, wow, thanks a lot. <laughs> but you know what? It is a tremendous favor, very quickly, for three reasons. Number one, you get to partner with the Most High God, and there could be no greater honor than that. If the president called you up and said, hey, will you, will, you, will you help me out here? Will you partner with me as I carry out this plan? Most people here, not everybody, but most people here would say, oh, what an honor, the president of the United States. Uh, gladly, uh, I get to partner with the president or some other dignitary. Well, I'm here to tell you that the God of the universe is dialing you up right now. He's on the phone. And he's saying, hey, listen, listen, maybe he's saying something like this, and, and, and you may not see this clearly until you step into it. But there's a kid in our youth that is going through the very thing you went through when you were a kid. And man, he could use a testimony right now. Uh, and, and God is trying to pull you, saying, get involved in this. You'll figure out why in about three months. But right now, I'm just pulling you in. Will you say yes? Will you say yes? He's dialing you up. To partner with the Most High God uh, is the greatest honor in the universe. Number two, to partner with the Most High God gives our life eternal significance. Most people live for the here and the now, get a good job, get as nice a house as you can get, get as nice as car as you can get, live as, with as much convenience as you can get, and then you die. 
They just, we just survive. God doesn't want us to just survive. He wants us to live, and there's a big difference. Uh, life is when life is meaningful. Dogs are happy. Animals are happy just living, uh, surviving. My dog, it eats, it poops, it, it, it uh, uh, barks, and then I holler at it. Uh, I take it up for walks. That's basically a dog's life, but it's happy because I'm a really good owner and I pet it a lot. And, but it doesn't, it doesn't have any existential angst for the eternal significance of life. <laughs> at least not that I know of. But, see, human beings are of a different category. At the core of our being is a longing to count, to matter. And if, whatever you do that ends with you going to the grave, ultimately that doesn't matter. It may be good, but it's not, it doesn't give life meaning. The only thing that has, Jean-Paul Sartre, the great atheist philosopher, was right when he said, a finite point without an infinite reference point is essentially meaningless. What that means is the only what is endless matters. Every kingdom act we do, when we say yes to God, he bursts something in us and through us. When we do that, it causes ripple effects that go on throughout eternity. That's the mustard seed kingdom growing. We maybe don't see the direct repercussions of what we're doing, but, no, but it all, it, all of it has those repercussions. Whether you're folding bulletins, handing out bulletins, setting up chairs, cleaning the toilets in the church, uh, cooking a dinner for somebody, all of it, all Christ-like kingdom work has ripple effects throughout eternity. It gives you your life significance. You're favored because your life gets to count. You're favored because your life gets to matter. You're favored because you get to have a purpose in life. Most people don't know what that is. I encourage you to listen to God and he'll tell you what it is and he'll grow it inside of you. And when it comes out, it's going to have repercussions in this world. And thirdly, and I close with this, serving God, partnering with God is the greatest blessing you could ever get in life. Amen. It simply well, is the greatest. Yeah. It, it, it is the greatest blessing in life. Show me a person who's miserable and I'll show you a person who's, who's basically their life doesn't go much beyond themselves. Show me a person who's miserable, I'll show you a person who's got too much time on their hand. I, medical conditions aside, okay, because that happens too. But show me a person who's the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, miserable person and there's a lot of them out there. Uh, a person who's miserable, I'll show you a person who, who's got too much time on their hand and they think about themselves too much. Show me a person who's miserable and I'll show you a person who just has not yet discovered that Jesus was right when he says if you lose your life, you'll find it, but if you try to find your life, you'll lose it. You see, find a person who is, who, who is out there on the field, who's doing stuff that matters to other people, who's coming under people, who's learning how to wash people's feet, to serve in a certain way. Find a person who's, who's let themselves get pregnant as God puts a passion in their heart. And now they swim upstream in the culture and they sacrifice to see that vision come to pass. Find a person like that and you'll find a person who, however difficult their life may be, and sometimes it gets really difficult, However difficult it is, they're going to have a peace and they're going to have a joy and a blessedness about them they otherwise wouldn't have. And if you ask them, they're not going to do the martyr thing like, oh, I gave up so much for Jesus. Their attitude would rather be something like, I'm so lucky. It is such an honor. It is such an honor to wash, wash these prostitutes' feet. It is such an honor to, to, to serve in this way. Nothing but nothing gives joy like that. A couple days ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, Kent. Uh, Ken Garborg, and he's just a guy who's been attending here for some time, a uh, good friend of mine. We, we, he, he, the short version is, uh, uh, is this. He responded to, I, I think it was just a, an advertisement, our bulletin, we got a million of them there, and just said we need somebody to help out with the Alpha Group down at the Union Gospel Mission. 
where you're working with guys who are really in rehab and trying to recover and things like that. He said, I think I can do that. So he starts helping. Then he starts leading. The things, God starts blessing the ministry. He sees dozens of people come to Christ. He's hundreds rededicate their life. The ministry starts to blossom. It starts to require more time. He starts to get more invested. He spends time with these guys, learning about their life and helping them work through stuff. I wanted him to come up here and give the testimony himself, but he's up on the boundary waters fishing with these guys. You know, that, that, that's just how it goes. A little while ago, it gets better. Wait, wait, hold. Wait, there's more. About a half a year ago, in, in, a, in a worship service, God just gave him a, an idea. Uh, he was seeing that a lot of these guys, when they get out of, of their rehab, uh, they lapse back into it. Even when they've accepted Christ, whatever, there's not enough support around them when they go. They're not ready yet to go out and mix it up with the real world and, uh, or with the, 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 the unsupported world. And so he got an idea of, 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 of get, getting a halfway house. He goes out on his own money and buys a house. And he get, goes through the process of getting it zoned for this, and then he raises up money to get a full-time director. And now he's got this house where these guys can go to. They commit their life to Christ. They go through their, 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 their treatment. And then they go into community. They live in community there. And they got a director. They got this mentor thing going on. And he's pouring life into that. Now he's, now he's planning on doing a second house. And ultimately he says God wants him. This is how he's pregnant. God wants him to have 10 houses around the Twin Cities that uh, are halfway houses. Amen. And he's going to do it. He's going to do it. No, I guarantee you, he doesn't have a clue how he's going to do it. But, but he knows it's going to happen because God is in it. See, that's just one way that it looks. I, when I was talking to him, I asked him, like, why do you do it? And I know why he does it, but I wanted to hear it because I was getting an illustration for the message. <laughs> but he didn't know that. And he just says, you know what? If people ask you, I could be out retiring someplace, but, 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 but that wouldn't be meaningful. This is the most joyful, blessed, meaningful thing I've ever done. And he's just choked up as he's saying this. It is such an honor to, an honor to minister to these guys, to, to make this kind of a difference. I don't know why God favored me in this way, but I'm glad he did. Amen. Most of us aren't called to that particular ministry, but all of us are called. All of us are called. God wants to impregnate all of us. A lot of us are doing that. A lot of us aren't. I just leave you with this challenge. Listen, honestly listen, intently listen. Seek to find out the seed that God is already planting in you. Listen to those still small voices. Respond to it. The, sometimes it just starts very small, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Try different things, uh, but, get, get, but, but get plugged in. Close your eyes, let's pray. The front of the auditorium is open. If you want to come forward for prayer for any need whatsoever, we have a prayer team that will be up here and would love to pray with you. And if you're here this morning and you've not surrendered your life to Christ uh, and haven't joined the kingdom, I encourage you to do that. Come up here to my right and your left. There's a lovely young lady who would love to explain to you uh, what's involved in that. Father, as we leave this place, help us to leave pregnant and plant the seed in us, Lord God. Help us to say yes. Uh, let it be unto us according to your, your will. Help us to swim upstream in the culture, Lord God, and to follow you whatever the cost may be, Lord God. It is an honor to work for you as we build this mustard seed kingdom revolution in every way, shape, and form according to your call. In Jesus' name we pray and all the kingdom people said, amen. amen. Go out, be pregnant, change the world. <laughs>